4 million. Does anyone here know what 4 million even means? Show of hands. Well, for a minute, I want you to imagine all the people in Philadelphia, San Antonio, and San Jose, or all of the people in Oklahoma. That's 4 million people. That's also how many children were positively impacted by the 2021 child tax credit. That's to say that one year, there were almost 4 million more kids lifted out of poverty. And the next, it went away. And 4 million kids, kids you've met, lost that expanded credit, and their families were immediately affected. So what went wrong? Congress abandoning the child tax credit and a lack of focus on kids is not something new, unfortunately. Today, we'll discuss where do we go from here? Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a new book from Teachers College Press and a new podcast from the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. Our Children Can't Wait is available now from Amazon and Teachers College Press. Last episode, we talked about the Brown versus the Board of Education Supreme Court decision, which was really a watershed moment in education desegregation, housing, and transportation. But the work is not finished. It's a long road. A decision from almost 70 years ago doesn't mean a magic wand got waved overnight, right? Supreme Court rulings or policy changes can't change mindsets for people who didn't want to live or go to school with people who didn't look like them. As I mentioned, I'm Joe Bishop. I'm bringing you powerful voices and actors within the education policy space so we can all be contemplating the ideas and solutions as we do our work. I had the opportunity to talk to Bruce Leslie, the president of First Focus on Children and contributing author for Our Children Can't Wait. So my name is Bruce Leslie, and I am the president of First Focus on Children. And where are you based? Yeah, we're based in Washington, D.C., near the nation's capital, and we work on all aspects of public policy having to do with children. So everything from early childhood and education to healthcare, juvenile justice, anything having to do with kids, we work on that. So let's go from first focus to you, Bruce. You're one of the leading voices for young people in the country, especially in, in Washington, but I know it didn't all start in Washington. Where did this start, Bruce? (laughs) I'm originally from El Paso, Texas, and worked there, and El Paso is located right on sort of the far western corner of Texas, right on the border next to New Mexico and Mexico. At the time, when I was growing up, it was one of the poorest cities in the country, and it's actually a bigger city than I think most people realize. I think, you know, there's I think something like 700,000 people live there. But both my parents were educators, and so I've always listened to them talk about the importance of education, and it certainly instilled that in me. Consequently, I've always been involved in kid policy once, you know, I got my degree in political science, but I have always been sort of attuned to kids' issues, and and that's, that's always what's really driven my focus and energy. When you think about your upbringing in El Paso, what, what sticks with you today when you think about the work you're doing as an organization? 
Yeah, I think some of the things that I really realized is the importance of education and really helping children basically achieve their fullest potential. And also having grown up in a city that had a lot of poverty, I realized the importance of public policy in terms of addressing the needs of kids and how, as a nation, we often neglect kids and and don't put their interests first and don't do things that are really important to children, for example, in terms of you know supporting public schools, making sure all kids have access to health care and child nutrition, those kinds of things that really do help support the success of children, but also their future. And Bruce, why, from your perspective, do we not prioritize kids in policy? I think it's complicated. I think a lot of it has to do with kids are seen in the purview of sort of like a parent bubble. So people think about kids in the context of families, which is important. I mean, families are, you know, certainly first and foremost, a key factor in the lives of kids, but they neglect to think about the importance of kids when it comes to public policy. I mean, they they do get it with respect to education, but they don't necessarily think about all the other things. Like when people think about healthcare, I think kids become an afterthought. People think about senior citizens and other aspects of healthcare and costs and things like that, but don't think about how we should cover all children. And people, I think, understand the importance of nutrition, but don't really think about, you know, school meals and those kinds of things that are very important in terms of making sure that kids have food to trust their nutrition, but also their hunger and those kinds of things, and the importance of those kinds of factors in school success. I think that it's just one of those things that when you see polling, if you sort of prime children, people are like, yes, I care deeply. But if you just ask people the generic question, you know, what are your big issues? People forget about kids until you say, Mm -hmm. Oh, you didn't mention kids. And then people are like, oh, yeah, 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 no, absolutely. And then when you talk about various aspects of child policy, then they're like, oh, yeah, I care deeply about that. And our children can't wait. You talk about children having little political clout in the the policy arena. What does that mean? Yeah, certainly in our country, right? Like kids don't vote. They don't have political action committees. They don't have lobbyists, those kinds of things, right? And those factors are certainly fundamental toward having, you know, power in our political system. But then there's also other aspects to this that I think are important to think about, which is kids are somewhat invisibilized. Part of that is because when it comes to policy, politicians tend to think about, all right, who's powerful? So kids are not that or who's a threat? And kids are also not that. So consequently, kids get invisibilized and marginalized and really become an afterthought. You know, they're seen as favorable. I mean, politicians are angry toward children or seek to do detrimental things to them necessarily. But the invisibilization and, you know, the marginalization of them actually has the same effect in some respects in that we vastly underfund kids. Kids in 2020, for example, at the federal level were only about 7% of the federal budget. And I think if you ask the average American citizen, do you think that's okay when kids are nearly a quarter of the population, I think people would be saying no. So the clouds are gathering here. We have to look honestly at where we are, but it's worth taking stock of where we are. At the intersection of tax credits, politics, And the U.S. Senate, I'm looking at you, Senator Manchin, our families, and kids. If we have a 
successful generation coming up, then it means our country will do all the better in the future. If we fail them and they are not able to achieve their goals and dreams and hopes, then you know we're going to start falling as a nation. That's coming up after the break. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote, and I made this podcast to have a conversation with you, precisely you. And so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this podcast. You can email me at joe, J-O-E, at ourchildrencan'twait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait podcast is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book's publisher is Teachers College Press. Funding for today's podcast comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. So let's take a step back for a second. What is the child tax credit? What changed about it? And why did Congress abandon such an important policy so quickly? Let's dig in more based on this quick summary from National Public Radio. In March 2021, Congress changed pre-existing child benefits known as a child tax credit. Lawmakers made three big changes, including Congress chose to disperse half of the child tax credit benefit in monthly payments instead of a lump sum at tax time. Lawmakers increased the benefit from $2,000 per child per year to a maximum of $3,600 per child for children five years or younger and $3,000 for kids six to seven. Finally, Congress closed a loophole that prevented roughly one third of our nation's children and half of all black and Latino children from fully benefiting because their families actually earned too little income. The expansion reached 61 million children across more than 36 million households. Researchers at Columbia University estimate that the child tax credit lifted roughly 4 million young people out of poverty. And by the end of their six months, reduced child poverty in the U.S. by about 30%. But because of opposition from Democrat Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, the bill did not come up for a vote in the Senate to extend the Build Back Better Act, which would have extended the expanded child tax credit. There's speculation that Manchin had concerns about the bill's costs and concerns about how poor parents, families who receive the monthly credit would spend their money. So I asked Bruce, how do we put our money where our mouth is when it comes to a tax credit that can begin to eliminate child poverty? So how do we make the shift to more mandated priorities for young people? What do we do, Bruce? (laughs) I think there's a lot of things. I think one is there's evidence that shows that when seniors who vote in larger percentages than younger people typically, when they're disconnected from kids and families, they start voting against their interests. That's often referred to by some demographers as sort of the racial generation gap. And we need to bridge that. We need to make sure that seniors recognize that investments in kids are fundamentally important. Also, it is young people who actually pay for Social Security and Medicare. That's how the government finances those programs. So it's actually in their interest 
for kids to be successful and young people to be successful. I think the other things we need to, to really do is make people understand that every issue is a kid's issue and get out of this uh, sort of parent bubble and, and lack of understanding that some of these issues affect kids. Because once you do, once you ask people, you know, do you care about things like the child tax credit or public school funding or child care funding, overwhelmingly the American public are supportive. And so really making the public understand that policy matters to kids and money matters to kids. And so we need to be making those investments. The other thing is sort of getting out. We need to also make sure that policy, when it comes to kids, that it it's kind of a weird thing to say, to say that you've got to center children in policy that's important to kids. But it is shocking how often policy is dictated by things that have nothing to do with kids. For example, the child tax credit basically that was enacted uh, during the economic recession, it cut child poverty by 40%. And it has now been allowed to expire in the U.S. Senate because of notions of, well, we need to add a work requirement to it, or we don't know if single parents should be getting a child tax credit. So there's all these notions of deservedness being imposed upon adults in the child tax credit. Well, it's the child tax credit. And consequently, by letting it expire, 4 million children are being pushed back into poverty. And that's not the discussion. The discussion is on work and things like that, not actually the lives and needs and concerns of children. And when you talk about that 40%, that's big. We're talking about a one-year decrease. And who did the child tax credit impact the most? I think it would be helpful for listeners to better understand that. Are we talking families of color? How does that look? Yeah, absolutely. So so in the history of the child tax credit, this sort of notion of deservedness and things like that were instilled in the program. And so shockingly, a third of the kids prior to uh, 2021, a third of the children in this country did not get the full child tax credit because their parents made too little. The program actually gave more money to middle and upper class families than to poor families. So one of the things that the child tax credit did in 2021 is recognizing that, you know, we have an unacceptable level of child poverty in this country and we should um, actually put kids first in child policy. Mm. They basically made the child tax credit fully refundable. So that meant that every child would get the same amount of money and they actually increased the the credit. The credit had been $2,000. They increased it to $3,000 for kids above the age of six and to $3,600 a year for kids below the age of six. So by making it fully refundable and expanding the credit, it actually cut child poverty by 40%. And it was probably the biggest reduction in child poverty in our nation's history. And unfortunately, the U.S. Senate has let it expire. This seems pretty newsworthy. Why do you think it has been in and out of the news cycle? I'm just curious. Because you're in this world... And you're very knowledgeable, clearly. But why is it leaving, <laughs> for, for lack of better terms? I think it's this fundamental question of children being marginalized and being an afterthought. In the case of the Senate, basically, Senator Joe Manchin, there, the Senate was divided 50-50, and Senator Joe Manchin, uh, who's a Democrat from West Virginia, basically could decide what was going to be in a major fiscal package that recently passed called the Inflation Reduction Act. So in that package, certainly the child advocates were saying, you know, we need to not allow the child tax credit to expire. These improvements have been huge for kids and have really made an enormous impact on 
keeping kids from falling into poverty you know, during the pandemic and the economic recession. And instead, he was worried about how are parents going to spend their money and will it disincentivize work and things like that, when there was actually no evidence to show that that happened in the recession. Parents got the money and they spent their money on kids and it lifted kids out of poverty, it reduced child hunger, it stabilized um, housing. So in so many ways, this has been really important to kids. And yet all these aspects of what a senator and some other people in the Senate thought about what was going to go on with parents, even though the data doesn't support that. But these notions of deservedness of adults basically caused the end of the child tax credit. So, Bruce, let's bring it back to you. What keeps you going knowing, you know, this this is an uphill battle in which you've really dedicated your, your career to. But what keeps you going day by day knowing that, you know, you might have strong evidence here, you might have this happening, but... What, what, what keeps you keeps you motivated? Um, it's kids. You know, I, I think fundamentally when you um, hang out with young people, I'm just always amazed at how amazing and resilient they are. And when you listen to their needs and concerns and their hopes and dreams, it really does drive, I think, all of us who work at First Focus on Children to, you know, redouble our efforts on their behalf and, and to sort of try to, you know, lift up their voice and their concerns and needs to policymakers and to really drive toward the goal of making sure that uh, the best interests of kids drive policy, that policymakers make them a priority and put their needs first um, and recognize that, you know, we need to do what's right uh, for their child well-being for them, themselves, but also for our nation. Like, you know, if we have a successful generation coming up, then it means our country will do all the better in the future. If we fail them and they are not able to achieve their goals and dreams and hopes, then, you know, we're going to start falling as a nation. Bruce, in the chapter, you talk about a, a children's commission. What, what would a children's commission accomplish and why, why do we need it? You know, we're the only country in the world that that has not enacted UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. So we do not recognize the fundamental human rights of children in this country and our laws. Other countries, every other nation in the world has done so. Doesn't mean that they've actually, they may have enacted it in name only, but haven't really done things. The nations that have, have really made progress, um, great progress on kids' policy, have this idea of an independent children's commissioner. And... What that role is, is it it has a voice in government for kids. And so the idea is that they would listen to kids, advocate on behalf of kids, make comments on policy within the government, and really support the well-being of kids and their best interests. The majority of kids in America are children of color. So when Bruce says we don't prioritize young people, He's also pointing out that we don't prioritize young people of color and families of color. We'll talk about youth organizing more in another episode, but here's a sneak preview. In recent years, to prevent more out-of-school suspensions from negatively impacting young people, especially black and brown students and students with disabilities who are more likely to be suspended Voices of Youth in Chicago Education actually spent three years surveying other students and introduced state legislation, getting a bill passed 
Senate Bill 100, which made it extremely difficult to suspend students and to push teachers and schools to pursue alternatives to suspensions. And in California, Californians for Justice, Youth Justice Coalition, YoCali have been instrumental in efforts to remove the presence of police in schools in places like Oakland, Los Angeles, Stockton, and San Jose. These are all examples of young people leading the charge for policy change, driving their own destiny instead of waiting for adults to push solutions. An independent children's commission like the one Bruce talked about, fueled by the expertise of young people and their lived experience, like the youth in Chicago and California, could be a game changer for prioritizing kids in America. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools in the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is the creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now from Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Winhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.